Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we interview uh, the writers of academic papers and uh, get to learn uh, a bit of the background uh, to the research and also the writers themselves. The person we're speaking to today is Jonathan M. Schachter from Kyushu Sangyo University. Good day, Jonathan. I thought you needed a PhD to get on the show. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, uh, we, we, we like to hear uh, voices from uh, all levels of academia. Nice. <laughs> Glad to be here. Yeah, um, really, really, uh, yeah, nice to be interviewing you. The, uh, the article that we're going to be talking about is uh, one that you wrote back in 2018. It's called Tracking and Quantifying Japanese English Language Learner Speaking Anxiety. Um, and before we uh, begin... Uh, to talk about the paper, I'd like just like a little background from yourself. So you're you're teaching at uh, Kyushu Sangyo University now. Um, have you always worked there? So I actually my background was in music. I, I wanted to be a professional trumpet player all the way up until mm. I was around 25, and then I I abruptly quit, and then I was sort of you know wandering around the world and in my own mind, so to speak. Mm. And then I ended up uh, teaching English in Australia and and then I went back to music and I kind of was going back and forth between teaching trumpet and teaching English in Australia. And then we came back to Japan and unfortunately my Japanese isn't or wasn't good enough to teach music here. And -hmm. then I started to sort of really focus on English full time and then that's when I got my master's. So I, I'm, I'm a bit late to the game. I finished my master's in 2017 mm-hmm. a, in uh, teaching English language learners. And then now I'm starting a master's in psychology at Macquarie University, uh, which will be a bridge to the PhD. It was supposed to, I was supposed to be a PhD candidate by the end of this year, but with everything that's going on in the world, that's going to be delayed. So uh, fingers crossed I'll be a PhD candidate in psychology starting starting next year. So I guess to answer your question, I, I taught at uh, a few universities. I taught part-time at University of Nagasaki mm-hmm. and Nakamura Gakuen, mm-hmm. but uh, Kyushu Sangyo was the first university to hire me full-time, and uh, I'm really appreciate, appreciative of that, and I'm really happy to uh, to be here in Fukuoka and yeah. teaching English. Yeah, how long were you in Nagasaki? Well, I was I was living about halfway between Fukuoka and, and Nagasaki, Sasebo, Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was teaching both in Fukuoka and uh, Sasebo, so I was living right in in the middle in a town called Keakidai, uh, mm-hmm. which is right near a bus stop. So I was taking an hour and a half bus down there. I taught there for about two years. Right. Yeah, yeah I've I've always liked Nagasaki. It's it's somewhere to um, go for a nice long weekend. It's the vibe is a little bit different from uh, other uh, Japanese cities. Yeah. I've never been to Nagasaki City. Oh. Only only Sasebo. Oh, uh, home of the famous burger. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. So, uh, as I said, the the uh, article we're looking at uh, is tracking and quantifying Japanese English language learner speaking anxiety. Um, and to begin with, where did you get the idea for this uh, investigation? So I I mentioned this briefly on the episode with with um, Seiko Harumi. Mm-hmm. Uh, citation number one. So essentially my job was to assess speaking skill of prospective students to an Eikaiwa. For people that don't know an Eikaiwa outside of Japan, that's a, that's a language school, a private language school for, for profit. 
And uh, I, I would sit there with the student for, I was supposed to sit in the room for about 45 minutes, the length of a normal lesson time. And I had this script that I had to go through. And by the end, it was, it was, supposed, to, it was supposed to be split in two. You do, you do an assessment for about 20 minutes, and then you do a mock lesson for about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I always thought that was a bit strange because if someone's, you know, a true beginner, you can, you can assess that almost immediately, but you know, they still said you have to go through these protocols. So I, I had to do this. And a few times I was met with a brick wall of silence. Now I'm used to some silence and there are studies that, you know, language teachers are used to about maybe in, in Japan, if you, if you elicit an answer, uh, I think language teachers, are, there's a study that we're used to about 40% of the time getting getting back silence. But mm. when talking with um, Seiko, she was saying, you know, maybe in Japan it's 90%. So I, I was used mm-hmm. to silence. I, I had some tolerance towards silence, and I knew it was prevalent in Japan. But a few times I would ask someone, you know, what's your name? And I would get get no answer. And then at, at times that silence would even last for about 10 to 15 minutes. And I'm, and, and at that point asking someone if they're nervous, you know, are you nervous? The yes or no question. It's not really helpful, first of all, because obviously they're nervous. Um, so I, at that point I just came up with the idea. Okay. I remember when I was, when I go to the hospital and they, they, the, the, the pain intensity, they would ask you the, the numeric rating scale, you know, on a scale of one or zero to 10, they said zero to 10. I know how much pain are you feeling? And I remembered that in my head. And I thought it might be better to kind of ask the question in that way. So I would, if I, if I came across a student that was really nervous in this one-on-one situation, I would say, how nervous are you feeling right now? And I would, and I'd show them like, you know, on a scale of, you know, one to 10 and I'd have them mark. And then sometimes it would be 10. I mean, (laughs) this Mm. would happen quite often, 10. And then uh, I would say, okay. And then, and then I actually, when I did that, I noticed that they started to relax. That was the first thing I did get this feedback that that helped them to cope a bit and that I was aware of their nervousness. And then they would relax a little bit. And then maybe five or 10 minutes later, I'd bring it back out. And I'd say, well, how nervous are you now? And then they would say, oh, six or seven. Okay. Well now it's decreasing and now I'm aware of it. So that was the first time I saw it as a really good tool to sort of, you know, help people cope and sort of reach out to someone and show them, I'm aware of your nervousness. You're in a difficult situation. You can't speak the language very well. Um, and then as I've started to research this more, there's a lot more complications and, and factors to why Japanese people may not speak or emote or display emotions, uh, which I'm researching now. But at that, that was the first sort of instance where I saw it as a tool to gauge someone's nervousness. And you note uh, very early on in the paper that this kind of anxiety uh, can go unrecognized by non-Japanese language teachers. Um, right. So do you think that that made you uh, a little bit more uh, perceptive that uh, you'd, you'd experienced uh, this type of anxiety when you were testing the students and you were able to you know, uh, notice anxiety in other situations as well? Yeah, I, I think there's this large disconnect between the Western cultures and the Japanese cultures or the Confucian cultures where this disconnect between, you know, individualism versus collectivism Mm -hmm. and, uh, in groups and out groups and all these things. I, I'm, I think I, I was aware of them, but I didn't, I didn't understand the background to, to them all. And I, and I, and, and everyone in Japan always talks about, Oh, I'm shy. That's, that's the buzzword. And then if you start digging into shyness and you start researching shyness 
it's really connected to a lot of different things, you know, status and, and all these other things. At, at the time, I, I just so, sort of viewed it as shyness slash lack of confidence. And I wasn't really aware of all the cultural issues that were at play at that time. And it's something that I really was interested in researching more because, you know, as a language teacher, it's it, it can be really confronting to, you know, and then in, in your classroom prep and, and you, you know, teachers sort of we thrive off flow and, uh, you know, getting in a rhythm, these sorts of things. We, it gives us energy. And then when you're reached, you know, you're facing silence, it can sort of, you know, take away your energy, these sorts of things. So I'm also interested in how to, to research these things and, and get practical applications to help teachers as well, not just helping students cope. Right. Um, I was interested to read the five causes of anxiety that you list uh, in the background. Um, and I'm wondering from you've been a, a language instructor, you've been, uh, we've worked in various universities and settings. Um, do you think that you have experienced as a language teacher, uh, whether you've witnessed all five of these causes? Well, so in, in, I think you're, you're referencing um, Harumi's paper. And uh, she actually referenced someone named Libra in 1987. And the, and the, well, Libra listed four, silence as truthfulness, silence as social, social discretion, social harmony, the, you know, the wa in Japan, mm -hmm. silence as embarrassment, silence as defiance. And then mm -hmm. Harumi says silence as a sense of sharing. Um, I think I've definitely – silence as truthfulness, that's a tough one. That, that's really that's really hard to know. Um, definitely wa. I, I've noticed that. You know, you, you probably noticed it as well or anyone who teaches in Japan – You'll ask someone a question, and they'll turn to their 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 neighbor, and they'll mm. they'll ask that person first. And, right. Yeah. You know, is it, is it, they they need to check with the group harmony that sort of thing. Um, silence as embarrassment. Now, now that's a difficult one too because Woodrow, two thousand six, she she classified people as either skills deficit or retrieval anxious. Mm. So there might be some people that lack skills. They didn't study. You know, they're not very good at English because they're not putting in the work. And there might be, be people that are legitimately nervous about answering the question. Now, embarrassment, what does that mean? Does that mean you're lacking the skills or you're actually nervous? And then defiant, yeah, I think I've, I think I've seen that too. Uh, maybe <laughs> a, t a student that doesn't really like me. I mean, I, I don't know. I teach first and second year students compulsory English. I think a lot of these students don't, aren't really motivated to, to study English. I think of the advanced classes, they are. I, mean, I don't, I don't want to do a broad generalization, but there are a large percentage. I guess it would be like me. And I, when I was studying music, if I had to take two years of math, maybe I'd be less motivated than if I chose to study math on my own. So I, I do get defiance as well. Um, I don't know. How, how about you? Do you, have you faced all five of those? Um, yes, I'd, I'd say that I do. I, um, I, I always look at my classroom the seating in the classroom has these kind of zones so the people that choose to sit at the back that's probably their silence as defiance uh -huh, because yeah. um, they want to be right in your eye line um whereas the different kinds of silence as you come closer to the front of the classroom uh there might be people who are you know more willing to embarrass themselves to try mm. uh, um so yeah I'd, I'd say that uh, i've uh, witnessed those as well um so the uh, do, do you think that some of this is caused by 
Um, so you spoke a little bit about like the, d- the tension between like the Confucian uh, way of uh, teaching and learning and uh, the more Western way. Um, when you were a language student or when you were uh, a student, did you find yourself um, experiencing anxiety? Were you a nervous student yourself? I think with, with music, I was. Mm. I I didn't really have anxiety about performing until I got to university where the competition got much better. I also had some some problems, uh, some, some technical problems I was going through. I had like, like a few injuries, these sorts of things. Mm. And I started to lack some confidence and I started to have performance anxiety. And at the time, my 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 trumpet teacher didn't really offer me a lot of a lot of ways to cope. He had, he he. The, I think I remember he said, "Okay, you need to breathe out on one, breathe in on two, and that was pretty much it. it." It was very binary. It was dealing with breathing. I understand that you know breathing, you know slowly slowing your breath can decrease your heart rate and sort of relax you. Mm. But if you're already nervous, it's it's kind of hard to do that. And I I didn't feel that anyone was able to provide me with something to really help me cope with my performance anxiety. And then especially you're, you're taking lessons with great professional musicians. They're, you know, they're the top of their game. And so they're less likely to go through anxiety of someone who's going through technical problems. So I think I can empathize with people. It's a, it's a weird thing though, that I feel like this isn't highly studied in Japan, but if you talk to any language teacher or any Japanese student, They'll always say the same thing. Oh, I'm nervous about speaking English. Or mm. you'll talk to someone who's teaching Japanese learners, and it's very prevalent. Well, they'll, well, they, you know, they'll say, "Oh, my students say I'm nervous. I'm, mm. I'm nervous to speak English. I'm, I'm shy." So it's this issue that I feel like it's facing everyone. But I'm, I'm surprised that there aren't that many people that are really studying it in Japan. I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think there's so many out there studying language learning anxiety in Japan where Japan is actually probably the country that has the most amount of anxious language learners in the whole world. And, you know, a lot of the, stu- a lot of the studies, most of the main studies came from two places. One, Austin, Texas, where they're studying, you know, people who are, stu- who are studying English as a second language, you know, either they're Spanish-speaking uh, immigrants coming to America or they're people, you know, L1 English speakers that are, you know, studying Spanish in school. And the other one is up in Canada, with in in Quebec, where you have the French, uh, you know, the the French Canadians who are studying compulsory English, and the reverse, um, the, the almost I would say ninety percent of all the literature comes from those two places, and I feel like this this should be there should be more output coming from Japan, and I'm hoping in the next couple of years doing some of the studies that I'm doing, um, I think I think we will see some more studies coming out of Japan because it it I think they're important it needs to happen. Uh, I agree. I mean, the uh, the reason why uh, I chose to interview you on this paper is exactly as you say, um, language learning anxiety is is very high. And the the word that you used in there that I think was as you know most useful uh, for language teachers is that of empathy, and uh, just approaching the activities that you choose to do in your class, knowing that there is a possibility of this anxiety allows you to plan for it and prepare some mitigation strategies. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, you know, going a little bit, jumping into the the actual project uh, that you did, um, uh, you, you've you mentioned already about the, uh, the nervousness metric. Is this uh, um, a, a 
something that's unique to your study or did you uh, see something similar in another paper? No, this again, this this came from the, the numeric rating scale that, that doctors and nurses use to mm-hmm. gauge pain intensity. And now, now that I've learned more about it, um, actually the scale that I used in this paper I've learned now is actually incorrect um, because I, I conflated two types of emotions. Um, let's see what, it, what, it, I think it was on a scale of one to 10, one being totally relaxed and 10 being extremely nervous. Now that I'm doing psychology, uh, you're not allowed to do that. So you, you're not allowed to conflate two different emotions. Right. So in future studies, I'm going to use the same emotion. So, um, I, I think what you have to say is one, not at all nervous and 10 extremely nervous. Right. So in, in future studies, I'm going to be using this scale with, uh, d- different, different sorts of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was, yeah, this was the, I, I had just, uh, I hadn't really read anyone else doing stuff about this at the time. Um, but now that I'm doing more research, there are similar scales out there that people have used, whether it be uh, on, you know, on a scale of one to 10 or one to a hundred. Um, there's these panis scales that uh, on, on, a, on a scale of one to five, I'm also going to be using some of those. Mm-hmm. So this was, this was just the first, it, it was almost, I think it's a good tool for teachers to use just to gauge how nervous your students are in the classroom, because they're not going to be, they're not going to have the confidence to tell you that they're nervous. They're not going to speak out loud. They're probably not going to come to you after class to tell you that they're nervous. Um, so it's a good way to sort of just pass this out. It's an it's an anonymous way. Um, they don't need to put their name on it necessarily. If, you know, you can just check. You know, you can see what the what the ratings are in your class, and it's it's a it's a written communication. It's very simple. It can happen really fast. So if you're if you're if, if you're wondering what's going on in your class, if there's there's a reason why you know people aren't answering the questions, and you just want to check. I think it's a good it's a good tool for for teachers just to sort of reach out and and quickly gauge the amount of nervousness in your in in your classes. Yeah, I I agree with you that the the anonymity of it is is very important um that they're able to give you this feedback and it's not necessarily um them being nervous doesn't necessarily mean that you the teacher is doing something wrong. It's kind of it's a very it's oftentimes it's a very personal experience. So uh, being able to, you know, communicate that without having to add their name, I think is important. Um, uh, when you were, um, so you, you did uh, two different occasions during the class. So at the beginning of the class and then prior to the task. Right. Um, can I ask, why, why did you choose those two occasions? Well, at the, at the beginning of class, everyone seems pretty relaxed and the the lesson structure that i was doing at that time i would i would start the class take attendance and then i would write the goal for that that you know that lesson and i would explain what kind of task it would be whether it's an indi- individual presentation or group work and so forth and then immediately you would you would start to sense some nervousness mm. even just announcing that day's task and so i wanted to take a gauge of their nervousness even before i told them their the task you know, people come into class, they're pretty relaxed. They're, they're talking to, you know, they're talking to their friends. So I thought that, that was a good baseline. Just how are you feeling now in general? And then, you know, you announce that you announce the task and then you can kind of see people's nervousness increasing. And then as it's, it's reaching towards, you know, about to do a performance, essentially, mm. that's when I, you know, I, that my, I hypothesized that that's when nervousness would increase the highest. So I wanted to sort of get a baseline 
and I wanted to gauge when I foresaw nervousness being at its highest. That's why I chose those two points. Mm. And just from a methodological point of view, um, did you find it easy to explain to the students what you were doing and why you were doing it? That's a good question. I I was teaching very high level students mm. in um in Nagasaki uh with the study that I'm going to be doing, well, it's been postponed this year, but hopefully, you know, maybe well, hopefully next term if not next year, I'm going to need some more language support. Um mm. I've already created sort of powerpoints, but I'm also going to bring in a tenured professor who who speaks Japanese. It's going to be much more complicated future studies. I, I I would say the language barrier wasn't as big of an issue there because the students were in a special program and their English was was quite you know proficient. Mm. Um, but if I were to do it in in the setting I'm I'm in now, I would need to provide them with more support, and I would need to provide maybe some additional documents in in Japanese so they can read or maybe like a video or something. But at that time, it was it that wasn't an issue at that time. Mm. Uh, do you foresee that uh, it's going to go as smoothly as it did with the students in Nagasaki? Well, in the the future, the, my future project, I'm going to be using Fitbits to try to correlate, you know, heart rate with self reports. So I'm going to be building off this study. They're going to be they're going to be doing a self report at three times. They're going to do it uh, start of class, pre performance, and post performance. Mm. And we're going to be we're going to be tracking the heart rates via the Fitbit smartwatches um at the at those points and see and see how they they correlate now that's going to be much more complicated because we're going to be putting them in in randomized pairs and randomized group orders each week and it's it's going to be yeah i've already i've been i've been putting some work into the powerpoint also the ethics there's ethics issues Hmm. where they're going to need to read exactly what we're doing and so yeah and we have to be careful to present it that it isn't so scary and this is what we're doing, and you know we want to get volunteers. So I think, yeah, I am I am a little bit nervous about the recruitment, about you know getting volunteers, presenting how we're going to do the data study, um, and so it's not really scaring anyone away from it. And actually conducting the study for the first time, I'm sure things are going to go wrong. We're going to try our best to we're doing the due diligence now to try to you know make sure all the the Fitbits are labeled and the system is up and running and all that stuff. Um, but it's it's basically a proof of concept as as far you know moving forward with the with the next stage of the study. But you're right; it's a good question. That that is an issue. Uh, that um, hopefully the the PowerPoint will be good. I'm going to put a video in there. I have I have my daughter wearing the Fitbit, so hopefully that'll show them that it's not a scary thing. Um, it's easy to use. I'll I'll show them that. I'll I'll tell them exactly what we're going to be doing. I'm also going to offer uh, a 2000 yen gift certificate to the local convenience store. Hopefully that'll be incentivize it. Mm, <laughs> but yep. I am, I am worried. I am worried about that. Um, that isn't, that is an issue. And the only way I'll know for sure what I did right or wrong is I'd, I'm going to have to go through it and then uh, I'll learn from it and then do the, do the next stage after that, keep building on it. Yeah. I mean, putting the Fitbit on your daughter is either trying to reduce the student's anxiety by showing them it's safe or that you're willing to sacrifice your daughter on the <laughs> altar of science. Um, either way, uh, That's bravo. Right. That's um, right. Okay. So going into the details, um, could you give us a rundown of what the general patterns were in the changes uh, of the anxiousness of the students uh, through the semester? Well, I, I mean, it, it pretty much... 
it, it followed in a, in a basic way what I hypothesized that the the largest amount of anxiety would happen in the first week, and the lowest would happen in the last week. Mm-hmm. I I mean the the biggest decrease happened between the first and second weeks of data collection, hmm. and then it sort of steadily dropped from there, and this was without an intervention. Uh, finger quotes again. Mm. I I'm getting into trouble with some of my opinions that I had about uh, had about this before I got into psychology. <laughs> um, so a lot of a lot of the th- I had to, I have to sort of rework my thinking on on this stuff. Um, so from a from a psychology perspective, this self report was an intervention. Mm. Um, you know because they're thinking about their emotions. Um, I think there's studies out there. That if you label your emotions or you reflect on your emotions, it does actually lower anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I th- that that is one of my hypotheses anyway that I'd like to study more, but it turns out that's already been proven in in, in other ways. So this was an intervention in some ways where students were sort of tasked with reflecting upon their own own emotions. I was I was a bit surprised, I guess. I mean, one interesting thing is, you know, I just took the averages of the three classes. And so the start of class in the first week of data collection was a 4.7 out of 10. Hmm. And then in the final week of data collection, the pre-performance was at the same level. Hmm, so, I did notice that, yeah. So that that was kind of cool that, you know, essentially if, if people go through this system, I, it'd be nice if someone else could replicate it and see if they get the same results. That at the end of, you know, just doing the class – it kind of makes sense, you know, you know, practice makes perfect or repetition can lower anxiety. Um, so, you know, if, if you just go through a stressful situation, whether we're thinking about an English class or something else, if you do it for a period of, um, I don't know, 12 weeks and you, you, you track your own anxiety, there's a good chance you're, you're probably going to lower your anxiety it, it just, just via repetition and there's also the issue of just uh, the boredom, you know, in, in the first couple of weeks, there's excitement about it. And then around the seventh or eighth, eighth week of data collection, oh, we have to do this again. Um, I guess if, I, if I'm going to ever write a book one day, it would, it would be something to the effect of boring, boring the anxiety out, out of your life. You know, if you, <laughs> if you just, if someone comes to you, if you're a clinical psychologist and they say, well, I'm bored, okay. So every hour on the hour, I want you to to I want you to write how nervous you are on a scale of one to ten, and I want you to do this for a month. It probably would be really boring, right? Mm. I mean, I I don't know that there there's something to the issue of 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 boring people with their own nervousness. Um, something that should be researched more. I don't know. <laughs> That's a that is a great title for a book: the boring people with their own nervousness. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. What what were some of the tasks that you had the students do? What, what what were the performance activities? So we had we had individual presentations, we had group presentations, we had you know groups whether they're two, three, or four. We had poster presentations. Um, for example, maybe I'd have them do a mind map in a group of four, and then you'd have someone you know as a group they had to sort of present their ideas to the class. So I tried to try to split it up in the, in the paper. I didn't explicitly write which tasks were in each week. And maybe that's a weakness of the paper in the, in the next, in the next study, we're going to be doing, uh, dialogues. So students will be seated at their desks in two. They're going to receive a dialogue that they haven't seen before. They're going to have five minutes to practice the dialogue. This will be related to their, their level 
and maybe where they are in in the textbook. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make the dialogues. They'll they'll have five minutes. To, everyone will have five minutes to practice, and then in a randomized order, which will change each week, they'll go through with their partner and read the dialogue for, for about five minutes. And it doesn't matter if they. Fin- I'm gonna try to create a long dialogue, so it doesn't matter if they finish. So, for example, if they're nervous and they're going really slowly, they're still gonna have to go through it for the five minutes. And and so, this way, it'll be a standard performance in each week. And the reason I'm going to have them sitting at their desk is because, um, so that's not going to affect heart rate. So in the, in the next, um, yeah, the next phase of the study, it's going to be a standardized sort of class observed dialogue system. Yeah, that, that would be, that'd be an interesting activity with having to do dialogues while running in place. Well, well, it's, it's interesting you say that because one of the only studies I found that's tried to, excuse me, correlate heart rate with language learning anxiety, they did something with the presentation and the students were walking around doing the presentation. And of course that just threw off the heart rate. Right. And you know, it was really hard for them to find some, 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 some correlations. So, um, I was happy that we sort of saw that as a pitfall myself and Nick may who's, who's, who's writing the, the software. Um, he's been great actually. He's, he's, he's been way ahead of a lot of this stuff. So we, you have to, you just have to be so careful when you're, when you're preparing a study like this. Mm. And I was actually really surprised that that, that person, cause they, I mean, I think they did this in 2011, 2012 and the money that they spent on like almost like an EKG, um, their sample size was, wasn't that high, but to just go through the whole study and then not think that walking around is going to affect the person's heart rate. I, I, I was actually really shocked by that, that, and, and I, they couldn't have been happy after mm-hmm. going through all of that and seeing that their their correla- their correlations weren't really lining up and then they'd say okay well i see your 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 heart rate peaked at this point but you you self reported this and then they finally realized oh they might have just been walking around so, <laughs> <laughs> so you you joke but you're right it's uh it, yeah you have to be careful about stuff like that well it is all these uh these these variables that um well from any time i've had to do any any study uh, a lot of the preparation time is just you kind of trying to walk through what it's going to look like practically and trying to guess what the potential you know stumbling blocks are going to be um just because then you have to try and mitigate them or or remove them before they even come up Mm. um are are there any other uh things that you're having to on on, while we're on the topic of uh, like mitigating problems um having the the people seated yes i'd take away some of that um, make sure that that's not affecting their heart rate. What are some other things you're having to uh, prepare for? Well, the ethics the ethics process was was quite intense. This mm. is from the Macquarie University side, um, and unfortunately, I was I was hoping to do data collection last term, um, but the the ethics committee. I, I don't know if this is the way it is at every university, but Macquarie Ethics Committee meets once a month. And so you submit your ethics proposal and basically it's, um, it's approved or there's some sort of comment. So if there's any comments, you have to address those comments and then reapply the next month. And so I think the first time I applied, I had, I had about 15, 16 comments that I, I needed to address. And the next time was about five. And then I think the next time was two. And then finally I was approved December of last year. Mm. And for people that, you know, that teach in Japan know that that's the very end of the term. So <laughs> that's it. 
but the 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 ethics issues were quite intense especially with recruitment so i'm not allowed to do this study on my own students so i'm going to be going into the classroom of another teacher um and then i had to face the issue you know talking to my boss about at first we were talking you know maybe can we switch classes and we can have two you know two two classes in the in the sample size and then my boss was saying no 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 the the teacher who's teaching the class they can't leave the classroom so and then Macquarie is saying well the the teacher's classroom that you're going into they cannot be involved in the study at all because that would be biased that's the whole reason you're not doing it on your own students so we came mm-hmm. up with this with this system where i'm going to come in for half the class and the teacher of the class is just going to be sitting in the back of the room and he that person's not allowed to do anything. And the only benefit for for this teacher, I guess, is this teacher, this particular teacher is interested in possibly using the system in the future. Mm-hmm. So he can see how the methodology works, he can see how the system works. And then if he comes with up with an idea how to use the system, um then he can use the system in a future paper. He can't be a co-author on this paper though. Right. Um, so there's there's all these there's lots of issues about who can be a co-author, who can't be a co-author, how is recruitment going to work? It, even to the even to the I in in the in the recruitment I have to provide everyone with an envelope. If they're gonna if they're gonna join the study, they have to sign the form, put it in the envelope. If they don't want to join the study, they leave the the, the the they don't sign, and then they need to put it in a box outside the classroom. That was that was that was dictated to me that I have to do that. Where they're not going to have any any contact with me, there can be no issue that they're going to feel pressured into doing this that it will affect their grade in any way. Um, it cannot be considered a test in any way, um, uh, and and that 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 brings up other complications too as far as conflating test anxiety with language learning anxiety. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, as far as the ethics, the I mean, it it was a it was a it was a great experience to go through all these ethics issues and the ethics committee brought in some good points. There was another point where, so I had all the, um, uh, the consent forms translated into Japanese and there was even an, even, even a comment where they said, well, the, the translation, the Japanese translation seems more authoritative than the English translation. And I had hired a Japanese translator and, uh, I, I went, I I took it back to the Japanese translator and she was really surprised what we think happens is that we think they just put it into Google Translate, and when you take Japanese and you put it into Google Google Translate, they'll it'll take out words like please, you know these mm. these. So we're thinking maybe that happened, or maybe there was a Japanese person on the committee. Um, it was someone brought in the cultural issue where they don't want because you know Japanese is sort of a group groupism. Um, we don't want a person to feel like they're going to be outside of the group if they don't join the study. How are you going to include and then my boss was saying, how are you going to include students in, in this activity even if they're not going to join the study? So that's why we're going to have these randomized pairs. There might be students that aren't, that aren't going to join the study. What that means is they're not going to wear the Fitbit, but they're still going to have to engage in this activity, which is beneficial and linked to the syllabus and, and that week's activity. So the, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was rough, man. It was, it was just one hurdle after, after the next, mm-hmm. and it – it was it was strange going through this ethics pro- this ethics process. A- at the same time, it was it was good. Sometimes I felt like, don't they want me to do this? <laughs> I mean, this is why you accepted me, right? But I guess you know you have to you have to go through this. And um, I think it, all in all, it's it's helped me to 
I, I've started writing the thesis already, you know, the intro and the, and the design and, and the literature review. And it's, it's helped me to shape the paper. Mm. I'm glad I've gone through it, but I'm in this point now where I've already, you know, couldn't data collect last term. I was supposed to start data collecting for just three weeks. I was just going to data collect three weeks this month, you know, get the thesis done in August. And then that's delayed indefinitely. So I'm, it's, I'm, I'm in a weird spot right now where I was sort of, you know, I wrote all last month every day on this thesis and I was getting pumped to do the recruitment and the data collection and now everything I might actually, I might need to take a leave of absence from, uh, from my school. Um, because Macquarie has said you're, no one is allowed to do face to face data collection and it doesn't matter what country you're in. And if, and if, if you're in a country that has, it has maybe a less strict rule, you have to apply the Macquarie rule. So right. I might be, I, I don't know. I don't know when I'm, I don't know when I can start data collection. So it's, it's, it's really frustrating. Yeah. I, uh, speaking about your preparations, I, I saw the, I saw the photos of, uh, uh, you with just paper all over the floor. It looked like one of those. Uh, it looked like the, the the shed in a beautiful mind, where his wife <laughs> finds all the the pieces of string connecting all these different things connected up to. Um, but yeah, it it does sound. It is pretty frustrating when these things have to be put on hold for things that are completely outside your control. Um, so so you say that the new study is just three weeks, not um, not the full semester, as in the yeah. paper. So. I applied for the PhD program and they, they thought I wasn't prepared to go right into the PhD. So Macquarie has this bridge program called a master's in research where mm -hmm. they give you credit for the first, for the first year. And then you, you, you essentially do the second year of the master's and that, what that involves is a, is a research, they call their research frontiers essay, which actually has been a really difficult thing to do. And then the other is um, a thesis and this is a 15,000 to 20,000 word thesis. Hmm. So I want to use this system in the future for a lot of different things. And I have to, you know, it's going to be very involved. But for the masters, they said, you can just do this as a proof of concept, the system. So prove that the system works, do an initial data collection, uh, sort of a very simple correlation between self-reports and heart rate. And then we're going to devise what you're going to do for your dissertation, how we're going to dig into this deeper, how we're going to make it more, you know, more complicated, you know, fitting of a, of a, of a dissertation. So this is just sort of, it was just going to be a three week data collection and get, get initial findings, you know, justify and rationalize why the system's built, how it can be used in the future. And then over the course of six or seven months, formulate exactly what my PhD um, proposal is going to be. Um, and it's, it's, it's a great process. I think it's at first I, I know I was really, uh, I really wanted to start the PhD and, you know, get that sort of on my resume that I was a PhD candidate, but going through this process and even this, this, this frontiers essay, um, and that's why all those papers were strewn everywhere. I'm, I'm very new to psychology. So, you know, they're telling you to write this essay where you're, you're, you know, you're comparing and contrasting opinions of, uh, you know, the legends of the field and, and, and you have to find the limitations and I'm just a tourist to psychology. So I have, to, I have <laughs> to learn all this stuff on the fly. You know, in no way do I feel like I have the right to critique anybody. So it's, it's, it's been interesting that way. A lot of it has just been reading and, and sort of playing, playing catch up. And, uh, yeah, so there, there was just going to be a proof of concept, sort of a, a test run through. We were, we were, we were predicting that there's going to be problems and limitations. And we were going to cite those in the thesis about how, oh, this happened and this happened. And this is how we're going to fix it in the future. We're, we're foreseeing, you know, problems happening. 
um, cause they're bound to happen with, you know, tech and something new. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that's the idea of the, the, the masters and only the three week data collection. Yeah. There's a similar thing, um, in England when I did my PhD that you had to do, it was called a one plus two, um, okay. where you did, you spent one year doing the masters and then two years expanding that to a PhD, but for distance learning, which I was on, um, that became a, a, a two plus five. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, but at the end of the first two years, uh, I had to go back to, to study for one month a, a year. Um, and so I'd go back during the Japanese uh, Easter, not Easter, it was spring break. So basically February, um, I'd spend back in the UK. And at the end of the two years, I arrived back in first meeting with my supervisor. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to schedule your master's defense uh, for three weeks from today. So we're going to need, we're going to need your uh, thesis in, uh, in like 10 days. And I had, I had about five, 6,000 words down, but it needed to be, yeah, it needed to be over 15,000. So that was a, that was a mad 10 days trying to get Whoa. that. Um, but past, um, and so all these experiences are things that, that I think, uh, people who've done advanced degrees, you'll, uh, they'll be very uh, familiar to uh, those people. Um, I just want to draw, uh, go back to the paper. And, and one of the things that you uh, put in your, um, in your discussion, um, it says here that uh, you, you said reducing speaking anxiety in the classroom was not the central thesis of the paper. Um, I wonder if while doing this uh, study, you found some ways that you could uh, change your teaching to bring down the anxiety levels of your students? Well, yeah, that's that's a great question. And that I I think that's more from the reviewer at Jout. Mm -hmm. I wanted to say I wanted to say that this nervous metric actually decreased nervousness. Mm -hmm. So tracking and quantifying your own nervousness does decrease nervousness. But my only my only rationale for that was my own impressions of it. Me right. in the classroom seeing and you know you can't you can't say that um but that was my opinion that is my opinion that that this is a nervous reducing technique mm -hmm. and it 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 is it is it has been proven in other studies i didn't know that at the time but um it is it is a way to lower people's nervousness and it is a way to again reach out to your students and 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 show them that you're aware that nervousness is an issue um as far as a practical classroom things. I, I have a little bit mixed views about, about that. Um, I, I teach this pre-entrance. Do you have, do you have pre-entrance classes at your university? Um, not for language, I don't think. So we, you know, at Kyushu Songyo, we have these, you know, prospective students who are going to be entering in April. We do this pre-entrance class mm -hmm. in February. And I think that's a great opportunity to sort of test out certain things because you got these students who are used to high school. They're about to go to college. And I have some, I have some mixed opinions about it. I, I'm almost to the point now I think we should go the opposite direction and not be so sensitive about nervousness and instead you know, kind of give them the, what, the strong CLT approach mm -hmm. um, or the, the deep end approach. And I'm almost thinking that we should set cultural expectations where, okay, yeah, and it's almost it's the almost the opposite of what I was saying before. 
where you can do the one way where you're like, okay, we're aware of nervousness and we're aware this is an issue and we're going to, you know, be sensitive about it and we're going to give you this nervousness metric. And, and that's one way for sure. The other way is to go the opposite way and say, okay, well now you're in a Western style class and this is the way the class is going to be. And we're, you know, you're almost, you can do things, you know, when you were in, in elementary school where, you know, the teacher is just calling people by name. So instead of saying, okay, what's the answer to this? And just opening it up for people to raise their hands, that's not going to happen in Japan. So I started to do it in some, in some classes, um, in my reading class where, you know, students were, were not being engaged at all, where I would just go through the list and I would say, you know, I'd call somebody's name to answer the question. And then over, you know, a couple of weeks, they'd always be looking at their neighbor. I started to figure out who the really good students were. And I just started, you know, relying on those like the six or seven. And I would just use, I would, and then. And I found that the other students were okay with that. You know, the students that weren't, you know, that didn't want to answer the question, I wasn't calling on them. And I was finding the students that were willing to answer questions. And I was just relying on like six or seven students mm -hmm. to answer. I don't know if that's the best way. Um, but, you know, sort of the deep end, the deep end approach, you just kind of throw them in there. And, you know, this is, this is the way it is. And, you know, you mix it up and, it's tough. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the best way is. I think it would depend on your students level, their age, their experience with English, um, your personality style, um, you know, how you're feeling that particular day. Mm -hmm. Uh, because if you're, I mean, if you're tired, there's no reason to fight your students if they're not going to engage. Right. So I don't know. What, what do you, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, when it comes to, um, you know, getting more, making students more active in the class, I always tell them at the beginning, like, I'm going to call on your, on your names. I'm going to call you for, for different things. And I'm going to try and make sure there's a, there's a fair uh, distribution of those, uh, you know, people. So I'll, I'll speak to the whole class in one lesson. But I always tell them, you know, I don't know is an acceptable answer. Mm. If we've gone through the activity and you haven't got a, you, you don't have an answer that you think you want to share, then please say, I don't know. That's acceptable. Um, and when they, um, once they get used to that, I think that does reduce some of their anxiety of being called on if they know that's going to happen. So it's not, you've got five minutes to do this reading, then I'm going to ask you a question. If you get it wrong, then, you know, look out because we're on the third floor and it's a long way down. And that's not, you know, that they know that even if they don't get through it, um, they can say, I'm sorry, I, I don't know. And then we'll move on to somebody else. So you, you try to, even in a class of 25, 30, you're able to call on everyone in each class. Uh, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it depends on, on what we're, what classes we're doing. I mean, one, I teach mm -hmm. one, uh, class here on, uh, global issues and mm -hmm. we'll have up to 30 students in the, in the class, but yeah, I'll, I'll speak one-on-one -on -one to each at least, uh, at least once in the class. Yeah. Wow, that's great. I um, like that. I don't know. I, I, that's, that's a good tip. I think I'm going to start. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's a great example of setting expectations. I think that's really important. It's something I need to work on much more. And that's, I, I think, and, and I think Harumi talks about one of the, one of the reasons uh, you, so if a teacher has an aversive reaction to silence, it just makes it so much worse. Right. And sometimes we have different expectations. So what you just said, that's, I'm, I'm going to, I'm actually going to type that up and put it in print and give it to students and say, okay, this is an acceptable answer. Hmm. Um, cause that's tough, right? If you're, if you're sitting there with silence and the person's just staring back at you and they're not saying anything. And even Harumi was talking about that, the perception of silence between the teacher and the student, 
you know, the Japanese teachers might think that the students don't know uh, the answer. The, the native English teachers might think, oh, they didn't understand my English. Um, so then that's a great way they could, the student says, I don't know. They, oh, okay, they, they don't know the answer. And then and also, they did understand your English. That's great. Yeah, you also um, find out, I, I, I call it the, the rule of three. So if, you, if you've called on three different people and they all said, I don't know, then that's probably a failing of the activity. Mm. So if one person doesn't know, that's that's possible. Um, if the second person doesn't know, then if the first person was possible, and then, then two people in a class not knowing is possible. But by the third one, you might you might have to think, okay, maybe they didn't quite get the activity. Maybe I set it up wrong. Uh, I've misjudged the level of them, and it gives you that kind of feedback uh, in the class as well, rather than you know nobody volunteering and you're just moving on to the to the next stage in the class. So, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm, I've wondered. Um, kind of the the, the final uh, question I wanted to ask you on the, on the topic of the paper was: uh, Have you ever thought of doing um, this type of study, but with teachers? Um, and as their, far as, yeah. as as far as their nervousness in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, for like, you know people who've just graduated and started being uh, a teacher. Um, I think it's, it is very stressful when you start, um, you know, when you stand up in front of a class for the first time and all eyes are on you and you're having to, you know, set up this activity that you've, you've come up with. Um, and I, I wondered whether you'd, you'd thought about it with teachers and, well, oh, go ahead. And, um, whether, um, asking the teacher what they thought the level of anxiety of their students were, like how perceptive, how empathetic they are um, for the people in their classroom. I, I haven't thought about that. I, I've thought about expanding it in other ways. Um, there, so the Yerkes, I think I've talked to you about it before, maybe. The, the Yerkes-Dotson law in, in 19, I think 1907, they did this experiment with mice and they found that you know, the highest performance was when you had an anxiety level around like 60, 70 percent. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so I'm interested in in performance anxiety, helping people with performance anxiety. Mostly, I would I I'd like to drift back into music at some point and help people, you know, musicians deal with their performance anxiety because that was something that I didn't really have. Uh, maybe like sports psychology. I think mm-hmm. after I finish the PhD, I'm going to sort of move away from. I'm, I'd like to move away from linguistics. While that study would be interesting as as far as the, the teacher's perceptions of, of silence or how nervous they are, I think you could categorize that more of a public speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, there are studies about, you know, emotions with teachers, um, you know, yeah. and and I have to be honest, I'm not really that interested in that. I, I think, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, I, I get it. We all have emotions with, with teaching. I um I think I'd be more interested to go like I said go back to my focus, helping someone young like a university student who who has skills in in music but is when it comes to performance it's something, it's just such a tough thing you and it's something that I faced where I had the skills and you have this performance and then you feel you don't live up to your skills or the work you put in, and it's just such a draining horrible horrible feeling. Mm. So I mean if there were teachers that were going through you know huge mood swings and it was affecting their, their livelihood. I, I'd be interested in, in possibly helping them, but I, I feel, yeah, there's, I'd rather go towards the, 
the the performance coaching right i mean i i was thinking more in terms of the there are people that i've worked with in the past who quite clearly are giving off negative vibes in front of the class and it is affecting um their students uh, performance mm. so where if a teacher's looking frustrated or angry then i think it really can uh, affect the student's performance and it it all comes back down to exactly what you said which is being able to monitor your own emotion and knowing how much the emotion whether it's anxiety or uh anger or fear even happiness on you know on the positive side uh surprise things like that how much that affects your performance in in you know whether you're being the teacher and setting the activity or you're being the student who's being set the activity like if you if you can monitor it yourself i think you are uh, able more better able to control your performance well and there's a complication to that as well with so matsumoto he 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 does a lot of research into emotions and display rules and he's done comparative analysis between japanese d- displays of emotions facial expressions and Americans, and one of the one of the issues, one of the tough gaps I, I find in his research. So you, you you could probably guess what the findings are. So Japanese are much less likely to display negative emotions mm-hmm. in in public uh, as compared to Americans. They're also less likely to display high levels of positive emotions. That mm. it's more in the neutral because it comes back to individualism versus collect collectivism. And he also talks about you know, the power distance between individuals mm-hmm. and the status differentiation. So I think I'd be more curious about the status differentiation. Like how do students perceive their teacher? What, what exactly is the status they're, they're, they're seeing here and how much is that affecting their nervousness or their, their ability to, fo- to perform? Now, one thing the aversive, you know, displays of emotion by a teacher, of course, can uh, hurt performance. But what about that, that, the, the the issue of okay this I I'm, I'm curious to know what the te- what the students feel about the teacher status because you'd think that oh we're in a higher status position and that we're respected but I find some students I don't uh, the, I I I find lack of respect and I, whether it's because it's a compulsory English class or they just don't personally don't like me I don't know <laughs> um, the other the other issue with what you just proposed is how are you going to assess uh, their performance exactly. Like what, what kind of, what kind of performance would you be, would you be setting up? Well, I just mean, um, for the, for the teachers, just the ability to, uh, control the class and and guide them through the, the activities that they've chosen to do, uh, in the class. I, I don't think it would be possible to, uh, do any kind of, you know, anything, any, any study that could be replicated. Um, but it would be, Maybe it wouldn't need to be a study. It would just need to raise the awareness of teachers of the the, the huge variable in their performance as teacher is their emotion and their visible emotion um, in front of the students. I mean, well, then in that case, it's all, wouldn't it be better to just hire actors? <laughs> That's a good then, point. Yeah, and then you would you could rate student performance based on different uh, personality types. Well, aren't we all actors, really, Jonathan? <laughs> it's, uh, I, I'd like to. I, I hope so. That'd well, nice. I, 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 when I first started uh, as a as a teacher, I'd only just graduated from university. I was twenty one. I was in a 
Japan for the first time. It's, um, and, you know, so I was a different country with, though I'd never been, I couldn't speak the language. I was starting a new job that I'd never done before. And I came up with, and I was very, very nervous. So I came up with the character of the teacher that I would play for 45 minutes or 50 minutes or one hour, whatever the, the lesson was. And then when I'd finished, I could go back to being myself. And oh, wow. over the last 20 years, I I kind of have noticed that this character that I'm playing and my actual self have kind of merged and I'm much more. And when that happened, probably about, I don't know, 10 years ago, um, that's when I really found that my that my ability in the in the classroom really hit its stride when I felt I was being natural in front of the students. But yeah, it was a, it was a, I had anxiety problems for, for quite a long time. So that's why I was interested uh, in your, in your uh, study from the perspective of students and teachers. I mean, I, I think you're, you're onto something and there, there isn't so much literature in J- coming from Japan, which, mm-hmm. which you, you find literature in other countries, but this is a huge issue here. And yep. that, that would be an interesting study. I'd actually be interested to read it. I personally don't want to do it though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'm, you I'm can just, have it. You can do it. Oh, uh, I'll see if I can find a third person to, to get in on this and see if we could palm it off on them. Um, uh, I want to read it though. I'd like to read it. Well, we'll, we'll tell them, I'll tell them to add you to the mailing list then. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that seems a, a good place to, uh, to draw this uh, episode to a close. Um, but thank you very much uh, for joining us and, uh, and uh, allowing me to interview you uh, on this one. So the, the article we were talking about uh, was tracking and quantifying Japanese English language learner speaking anxiety. Um, so, uh, Good luck with your studies, Jonathan. Thank you. And I guess just to let the, the listeners know that we're going to be, you and I are going to be rotating interviews if people are, people are wondering. So you got, you have an interview lined up for next week, right? I do. Yes. And then we'll start, we'll start rotating back and forth. That's right. And uh, if you'd like to get in contact uh, with the show, um, tell us what you're, what you're thinking about it so far, then you can connect, us, connect with us by email. So that's lostincitations at gmail.com. We have a Facebook post uh, a page of the same uh, name, Lost in Citations. So head on over there and please uh, like us. And also you could share uh, the page um, on your social media uh, to to let other people know that it's it's available out there. And if you're feeling really super extra generous, uh, then you could go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and, and give us a favorable review because all of this uh, helps to uh, publicize uh, the work that we're doing. And uh, the very final thing that you can do, probably the easiest thing to do, is to tell a colleague uh, about our show and uh, turn them onto it. And uh, hopefully we can uh, reach some more people. Yeah, that would, we've already got some good feedback already, and it's it's going to be excited. I'm I'm it's going to be exciting. I I'm also excited. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> I'm nervous. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, well, we can all uh, we can all take a deep breath and relax now. Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening, and uh, yes, uh, come back and uh, listen again to our next episode next week. Thank Thanks, you, Chris. Thanks, Jonathan.